Welcome back to Psych Your Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. I want to thank all of you for listening. We gained some new listeners, so I want to welcome our Australian and Irish friends, the new Canadian listeners. I'm pretty sure they might just be my Aunt Patty and Uncle Charles, but either way, I appreciate the support. And if you really want to show us your love, give Psych Your Crime five stars on whatever platform you listen to us on, iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or you can head over to the Patreon page. I'll put the link down below and drop us some change. It really helps us out either way. If you want to reach out to me on social media, I'm at GeekFlossy on both Twitter and Instagram. Now, I know we had some audio issues with the last episode, but we've gone ahead and hammered those out. So let's get started. This is the story of Joyce McKenney the first woman convicted of sexual assault in Britain. Now, this is actually more of a stalking case than sexual assault, just simple sexual assault. So let's go over the different types of stalking. Stalkers can come from every walk of life and every socioeconomic background. Virtually anyone can be a stalker, just like anyone can be a victim. Even though there are very general categories for stalkers, that doesn't mean that every stalker fits neatly into a category. So the first category is going to be the rejected stalker. This type of stalker begins to stalk someone after their partner or a very close platonic friend ends a relationship or tells them that they plan to end the relationship. They want to continue the relationship so much that that's when they start to stalk them or it can be a form of revenge Um, the goals may vary depending on the response that their victim gives them they have high levels of narcissism and experience intense deep jealousy they may have felt humiliated over the end of the relationship or have been over dependent on this person and many times tend to have poor social skills They are often the most persistent and intrusive type of stalker, and they're much more likely to employ intimidation and even assault people in pursuit of their victim. Now, there tends to be a history of violence within the relationship, and this type of stalker is typically the most resistant to any efforts to change their behaviors. The next type of stalker is the resentful stalker. This stalker wants to frighten or disturb their their victim. And many times they stalk someone to get revenge against a perceived wrong. Uh, They view themselves as a survivor who is standing up against a person who they think destroyed their life. They're often irrationally paranoid. They tend to stalk people that either directly wrong them or they feel are a representative of a whole group of people that they feel negatively impacted their life. Um, They tend to be the most obsessive and enduring stalker. They're likely, the most likely to verbally threaten their victim and is the least likely, however, to physically assault them. They're likely to stop the behavior if they're confronted with legal actions very early on. But the longer the stalking continues, the less effective that legal action is going to be. Next, you have the predatory stalker. This type of stalker 
stalks someone as part of a plan to attack them usually um as part of a sexual assault they're motivated by the promise of instant sexual gratification and the power that they have over their victim this type of stalker tends to have poor self-esteem and poor social skills especially when it comes to romantic relationships uh, they may even have lower than average iq this type of stalker may stalk someone they know or it could be a total stranger they usually don't harass or try and contact their victim while they're stalking them though and they may engage in behaviors like surveillance obscene phone calls exhibitionism fetishism and voyeurism now this type of stalker may stalk for a shorter period of time than other types of stalkers and has a high potential to become physically violent with their victim now the next type of stalker is the incompetent suitor this type of stalker is motivated by a desire to start a romantic relationship with the victim. They tend to have this pursuit tends to be impaired by their bad social skills. They may be completely unempathetic to their victim's feelings and they believe that anyone and everyone should be attracted to them. They usually stalk people that they know. They typically engage in things like repeatedly asking for dates, even after they've been rejected, calling on the phone constantly, hundreds of times a day, uh, trying to show physical affection, even after a victim has told them no. Uh, they tend to stalk for shorter periods of time on average than any other type of stalker and has likely stalked people in the past. They usually stop very quickly if confronted with legal action and are very responsive to therapy and counseling. Next is erotomania and morbid infatuation. This type of stalker believes that they are loved by the victim, even though their victim has done absolutely nothing to suggest this could be true and possibly may have told them to their face they do not and never will love them. Now, the stalker reinterprets everything the victim says and does to support their delusional belief that the victim loves them. And this makes the imagined romance that much more of an important part of the stalker's life. They obviously tend to suffer from delusions and can also suffer from acute paranoia. They usually choose victims of a higher social class, most commonly celebrities. Think of Meg Ryan's stalker. He changed his last name legally to Ryan because he was telling people he was her husband. This type of stalker repeatedly will try to approach and communicate with their victim. And sometimes, however, though, they can respond well to treatment. However, they are typically unresponsive to threats of legal action short of going to jail. And without treatment, they are completely likely to continue stalking their victim even after they're released. Now last, definitely not least, is the intimacy seeker. This type of stalker seeks to establish an intimate, loving relationship with the victim and may believe the victim is in love with them. If this is true, it tends to be a delusion. Or if they believe this is true, it tends to be a delusion. The stalker 
believes that their victim is the only one who can satisfy their desires. They are the one. They are their soulmate. They will interpret any kind of response, even negative responses, as encouragement and may believe the victim owes them love because of all the time they've invested in them. This type of stalker is completely resistant to changing their beliefs about the love they think that their victim has for them. They're often a shy and isolated person that lives alone and lacks any sort of intimate relationships in their life. They may stalk acquaintances or complete strangers. If the stalker recognizes that they're being rejected by the victim, they may become threatening or even violent. This type of stalker may engage in things such as writing letters, calling the victim on the phone, or sending them gifts. They may become jealous if their victim enters into a romantic relationship with someone other than them. They are the most persistent type of stalker, harassing longer than any type other than rejected stalkers. They usually are unresponsive to legal action because they view them as a challenge they must overcome in order to demonstrate their love of their victim. Now, let's talk about Joyce McKenney. Joyce McKenney was born on August 6, 1949 in Avery County, North Carolina. Joyce grew up in Minneapolis, North Carolina. Yes, Minneapolis in North Carolina. She was the only child of teacher parents. She had a self-reported IQ of 168. Joyce went through a gifted program while she was in high school, where she was a cheerleader and a drum majorette. She did go on to college and she graduated with a bachelor's degree from East Tennessee University and a master's degree in drama from the University of North Carolina. Now, it was while she was at college living with a Mormon family that she chose to convert. According to Joyce, the family convinced her it would be the best way for her to meet a good, decent, marriage-oriented young man. But Joyce was very obsessed with fame and beauty pageants at that time. So she decided to pack up and move to Wyoming and try her luck in a less populated and competitive state. And it worked. In 1974, she became Miss Wyoming World and ended up competing in the Miss USA pageant. Joyce moved to Utah to go to graduate school at Brigham and Young University. With her best friend, Joyce cruised the local pizza parlors and ice cream shops looking for men. Not long after she moved there, Joyce met the man of her dreams, 19-year-old Kirk Anderson. Kirk was six foot four, a little pudgy, shy, and six years younger than Joyce. According to Joyce, their first meeting was like something out of a movie. Joyce had an orange Corvette and Kirk had a white one. According to Joyce, they bonded over their shared taste in cars and she felt it was love at first sight. By their third date, Joyce was naming their children. Now they did have a brief affair, losing their virginity to each other. But Kirk was so overcome with guilt at breaking the no premarital sex rule that he was completely distraught. It also didn't help that his mother, who had briefly met Joyce, did not approve of her. So he went to his bishop to ask for some advice. And his bishop arranged for him to go on his mission. Now understand, 
This probably would have happened even if he had never met Joyce. Most young men and even some women tend to go on their missions when they're 18 or 19 years old. Think of it as a missionary gap year. Now, while Kirk later admitted that he and Joyce did have a relationship, he denied that they were ever engaged. Joyce, on the other hand, appalled at the church's reaction to her love, turned her back on Mormonism, but was definitely not planning to give up on Kirk. The church sent Kirk overseas to England. Since the church would not tell Joyce where he was, she had to find out for herself, meaning she had to hire a private detective. And since they could be expensive, she started working as a model. For two years, she worked to pay for a detective agency in England who found Kirk working at a church in the Surrey village of Ewell. Joyce set off to find him, taking with her her friend Keith May, who happened to be absolutely infatuated with Joyce. Joyce convinced Keith that Kirk had been kidnapped by a cult. And with Keith's help, she hired a pilot named Jackson Shaw to fly them to England. She also hired Gil Parker to work as a bodyguard while they were in England. Joyce and Keith flew to England using false passports in the names of Kathy Von Baer and Paul Van Dusen. They rented a cottage in Oakhampton. Once there, Shaw and Parker saw that Joyce and Keith had listening devices chloroform, a fake pistol, and handcuffs. This spooked Parker, and he let Shaw know that he wanted to go back to the United States as soon as possible. This left just Joyce and Keith to carry out their plan. So, on September 14, 1977, Joyce and Keith drove to Ewell. Keith approached Kirk and it was under the guise that he was a potential convert to Mormonism. He invited Kirk to join him in his car so that he could help him find the way to the uh, closest uh, Mormon temple. Then he immediately pulled out a fake gun. Keith forced Kirk into the back seat where he chloroformed him. Once he got him to the cottage, Joyce had cooked all of Kirk's favorite foods including fried chicken, mashed potatoes, and chocolate cake. After dinner, Keith chained Kirk to a bed spread eagle with a 10-foot chain and left him alone with Joyce for the night. As a gift, Joyce presented Kirk with a $1,000 ring and even offered to give him a back rub. He did accept the back rub, and that's where things get murky. Joyce refers to Kirk as two different people. Kirk 1, the man she fell in love with, and Kirk 2, the man who was brainwashed by a cult and would often bolt upright and spout lines and verses from the Book of Mormon at her. Joyce claims that out of frustration, she ripped off his sacred Mormon garments and burned them. She states, and I quote, There was only one way to make Kirk get out of Mormonism, and that was to make love to him. Because for a Mormon missionary, to have a love affair is totally taboo. In fact, she says that tying him up was to help him overcome his sexual inhibitions. Something that she read in a Christian marriage manual. In a section that referred to impotence and how to combat it. 
it stated that sometimes tying someone up may help with such an issue. Kirk admitted in court that he and Joyce had had sex 14 times during the three-day period he was held hostage, but he claims she forced him by performing oral sex until he was aroused. In Joyce's version, however, after Kirk promised to marry her, they released him and brought him back to London where they had dinner at the Hard Rock Cafe. After dinner, Kirk told Joyce he was going to the Mormon Tabernacle Temple to assure them that he was okay. Kirk, however, claims he escaped and went to the police on the 17th. Three days after he went to the police, Joyce and Keith were arrested in a sting operation. Kirk had contacted Joyce and arranged to meet her all while being wiretapped by British police. Since Anderson, Kirk, was, has refused to speak about this, we only have Joyce's side of the story. Joyce and Keith were charged with forcible abduction, false imprisonment, indecent assault, possession of imitation firearms with criminal intent. Joyce was sent to Holloway Prison for three months to await her trial. At the hearing, Joyce's lawyer claimed that his client was living in fear of the Mormon church. Although Joyce wasn't allowed to testify, she did give an hour-long statement in court in order to give her side of the story. After claiming it was Kirk's choice to be tied up, since that was the only way he would respond sexually, she told the court he had strung her along with promises of love and marriage, stating he, that she would ski down a mountain naked with a carnation in her road, with a carnation in her nose for the love of Kirk. She then pleaded with the court to release her so she could get counseling to help her get over the extreme betrayal that she had felt at Kirk's hands. While the court decided to prosecute her, Joyce was released on bail for fear of her mental health. Joyce became the darling of the tabloid press. They fell over themselves to write stories about the case. And she at one point asked the court to lift the restrictions on what they were allowed to print. To give you an idea of how much she loved the spotlight in a van on her way to court, she actually pressed an open Bible to the window that had a message written in it. The message said, he had sex with me for four days. Please get the truth to the public. He set me up to make it look like a kidnapping. Now the tabloids loved this. She even took out ads in Daily Variety announcing she was writing a book and a screenplay based on what happened to her. They whisked her off to parties where she met members of the Rolling Stones and the Bee Gees and there's even a very infamous picture of her kissing Keith Moon. She went to the premieres of Saturday Night Fever and the Joan and Jackie Collins movie The Stud. But it somehow never occurred to her that hanging out with all these celebrities and partying could hurt her case. And then, one day, out of nowhere, wearing disguises, Joyce and Keith jumped bail, fleeing to the United States through Canada on false passports of dead people whose identities they'd stolen, all the while pretending to be deaf mutes. Joyce will tell you, to this day, I didn't flee. I left. Joyce was tried in absentia and given a one-year prison sentence. However, 
no effort was ever made to extradite her back to Britain. So to this day, she is a fugitive of justice. However, Joyce was not content to be out of the public eye. She decided to sell her story to a British tabloid, the Daily Express, for roughly $80,000. The journalist who was sent to meet her described in a recent documentary how Joyce and Keith were wearing various disguises, including dressing up as Native Americans. Joyce represented herself as a princess who went to great lengths to rescue her prince, calling herself a good God-fearing Christian Southern woman. Unfortunately, a competing tabloid, the Daily Mirror, had dredged up photos and advertisements that revealed her past as a glamour model. She posed for bondage photos, uh, took part in nude wrestling, offered nude massages, and even sold her used underwear via the mail. They also found out that she had been working as a call girl who performed BDSM and oral sex. If a client wanted intercourse, though, Joyce had a friend, a Russian student named Laura, who would be available for that. So they were able to prove that she did not engage in any actual intercourse. When the story went public, Joyce denied it. To this day, she claims that the pictures that were printed were fabricated. Even though the Daily Mirror had over a thousand nude pictures of her, some of them even came with the negatives. Upon hearing the story, Joyce became hysterical and her father came to try and help calm her down, but Joyce bit him. This was when she had to be hospitalized for fear she may be suicidal. And that was the last anyone heard of Joyce for a while, until 1984, when she was arrested for stalking Kirk. Police allegedly found chains and handcuffs in the trunk of her car, which suggested she was gonna try and kidnap him again. To this day, Joyce claims that Kirk is her one and only true love. She has never gotten involved with anyone else, never married, and never had children. Kirk, however, got married and had kids. Since this, Joyce did make headlines again in 2007, when it was revealed that she'd gone to South Korea and spent $25,000 to clone her dog Booger. Now at first, she insisted that she wasn't Joyce McKinney, using a fake name, Vernon Kenny. But eventually she did go ahead and admit the truth. Now many of you may know that a documentary called Tabloid about what Joyce went through was made by Errol Morris. She did cooperate with the documentary, but after seeing it, changed her mind and decided that she had been exploited by the documentarian and the producer and sued them. The weird thing about this is even though she was suing them, she still showed up at screenings of the documentary all over the United States. She would heckle the screen and sometimes she even showed up in disguises so she could make a big reveal at the end once the house lights came up. Weird really weird so that's the case of joyce mckenney some of you older people may remember it as the case of the manacled mormon super bizarre super weird but i hope you enjoyed it now 
I hope you join us next week when we look into cases of satanic panic from the late 80s and early 90s and try and figure out how an innocent family can end up in jail for, among other things, feeding babies to sharks in Texas. Yeah, that doesn't sound right to me either. I double-checked it several times, but yes, feeding babies to sharks in Texas. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing how and why people can do such awful things.